Delighted to welcome you to uh, Network Capital, Tarun. Uh, you've written a new book and had an adventurous year. So we're going to touch upon the year a little and then dive deep into meritocracy. So how was 2022 for you? Uh, Utkarsh, uh, nice to see you and thanks uh, for having me uh, on. Uh, 2022 was, you know, for the world, a turbulent year. As we all know, you know, high inflation everywhere wreaking havoc with particularly those who are already compromised uh, in terms of economic well-being. Um, uh, the Russian aggression in Ukraine uh, causing food inflation to spiral out of control, energy prices to go uh, haywire, um, uh, COVID, uh, China struggling and potentially incubating new variants for the rest of us to deal with for some time uh, and so on. So it's been a tough, tough year, I think, for most people. Um, for me, I'm um, both happy to report and a little guilty to report that it's been a great year. Um, um, I've, uh, you know, and I have the luxury I recognize of being an academic and an entrepreneur and the defining characteristic of both those avocations is that you do what you want. Uh, which is why I gravitated to uh, to those. And I've been sitting in my backyard, you know, uh, writing, reading, teaching a lot of courses at Harvard um, and globally whenever, you know, travel was permitted um, and working on my um, a huge nonprofit Aspire Institute that has really grown to 130 countries now and deals with uh, uh, first generation learners in colleges who are from disenfranchised backgrounds. Um, really, really fun and satisfying project that is in danger of running away from me in the sense that it's growing so fast. Um, and then other more conventional startups that you know I like to do in the developing world uh, with, with my former students, which I really, really love. Uh, so for me, it's been, um, it's been good. And, uh, you know, my family is well, uh, health is okay. So not much to complain, but I see around me, and I, as I say, guilt is the uh, guilt is the word that comes to mind. Um, there must be a word that's the opposite of Schadenfreude because it's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's called fraud whatever the reverse is. Yeah, the What's fraud and Freud. Fraud and Freud. Fraud and Freud. Okay, there you go. So that's it. <laughs> um, it's great. Like um, we met uh, during the middle of the year in London, then. We had another discussion about one of your earlier books in February. So you've been writing at prolific speed. Tell us about this new book, Meritocracy. Uh, you've been teaching in Harvard for a while, but I know that this book is a culmination of a very long thought process. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so the book is called uh, Making Meritocracy, um, Lessons from China and India from Antiquity to the Present. So. It's a sweeping um, collection of essays that I co-edited with my colleague, uh, Harvard historian of China, Michael Sonyi. Um, a real privilege to work with Michael uh, over the last several years. Uh, but it's a collection of essays uh, put together from a reservoir of goodwill from 50, 60, 70 leading academics um, uh, in China, India, and the United States. 
and Singapore uh, coming together to talk about various aspects of meritocracy as an organizing principle for societies. Um, as you know, uh, issues of meritocracy and fairness in allocation of college admissions and um, um, scarce spots in anything that's scarce, sports teams, political representation, these are hot button issues uh, in, in every society. Um, even as we speak, the US Supreme Court is hearing a case um, uh, brought by um, an entity whose name I forget that has repeatedly brought this case to the Supreme Court saying that universities like Harvard are being unfair and discriminating against. This time the case is, is uh, uh, posits that Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans in the admission process. Uh, and disadvantaging them uh, in a way that that is constitutionally indefensible. Um, so it's a topical issue in the United States. But one thing that uh, this collection of scholars, um, uh, we met, various subsets of us met over the last, I want to say, six years uh, in Beijing, in Shanghai, in New Delhi, and in Cambridge, and in Singapore. Um, to discuss various aspects of meritocracy from a variety of perspectives. And I think that's what distinguishes uh, this collection of essays. We had, of course, uh, philosophers and policymakers. We had economists and political scientists. Um, uh, we had legal scholars. Um, and we even had applied mathematicians and computer programmers and engineers mm -hmm. thinking about um, all aspects of this very complex issue to get your arms around. And this was instigated over a nice glass of Cabernet um, seven, eight years ago in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a local bar in Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, with um, uh, uh, a friend of mine, E, who is an entrepreneur in China in uh, Shanghai, and Mark Elliott, who is another historian of China at Harvard. Uh, just starting to talk about, you know, affirmative action in India and the Gaokao, the examination system in China, and how it is so filled with emotion and implication and uh, uh, attendant effects on economic efficiency or inefficiency, legitimacy of power in the state. Uh, and the same was true in the United States. Um, yet the curious thing was that the debate in the United States was then and continues to operate in a bit of a vacuum in the sense that uh, people here in my adopted home, Boston and the US more generally, uh, seem to be unaware that the same issues have been litigated endlessly uh, for centuries, uh, even for a thousand years uh, in many places around the world. In fact, I can't think of any society where I've been where merit and fairness is not uh, a central issue uh, around the kitchen table. Uh, so what could be more central and how, how is it that we're going through all these conniptions when every society has dealt with the same conniptions for centuries on end? Mm. And so, you know, because um, I spend a lot of time comparing China and India and I was with China scholars and China entrepreneurs and financiers, uh, we put together this uh, cabal of characters who over time culminated in this essay collection. When I think of uh, you sitting in Harvard uh, writing about meritocracy, I'm actually really uh, excited to learn more about the discussions that have taken from the last essay, which was by a mathematician. From I know you you also have referenced Michael Sandel, who've written mm -hmm. Myth of Merit uh, the Meritocracy Myth. 
this is a subject which, you know, from John Rawls to the mathematician, various scholars have studied. But I'm very interested from your point of view. You see merit every day in your classroom, right? In different shapes or form. How has that uh, impacted your definition of merit, if at all? So, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, I, I'm trying to look for the right word, let's say pitfalls of engaging in discussions about meritocracy is that it gets stuck on the definition of merit. Uh, and in my view, it really progresses beyond uh, debates that have, again, been going on for a thousand years of what constitutes merit. Uh, of course, at an abstract level, it's always very similar, right? It's a combination of natural endowment and the nurturing that that endowment has been happy to, has been fortunate enough to receive uh, or, or unfortunately has not received, resulting in the ability to do things. And then there's a little bit that has to be in any definition of merit that has to do with the matching process between such um, endowed and shaped talent at any point in time and the particular sort of tasks in society to which that talent is being put, uh, put to work. Um, and in a meritorious society, you would like to, uh, Cetris Paribus, see more meritorious people go further in a sense, whatever your metric of furtherness is. Uh, and you would like to see uh, the best possible allocation of um, uh, tasks in society to people best suited to that task. Right? Uh, so at the abstract level, all the definitions are the same, but it quickly enters into a quagmire of definitional in inexactitude. So Michael Sonny, my co-editor and I, took the novel uh, stance of saying, we are not going down that rabbit hole. Um, mm. We are going to come up with uh, a set, or we're going to look for of course, at the outset, you don't know what you're going to come up with. But we're going to look for a set of regularities that seem to transcend time and space and are respectful of the very broad abstract definition of merit, but don't get bogged down in uh, why your definition is different from mine and whether you're prioritizing the right things. Because the prioritization of different definitions is itself uh, a contextual variable. Uh, what constituted merit in the Mughal army um, uh, from the scholar official in uh, in 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 Mencius's time or Confucius's time, uh, from somebody you know a programming uh, person in the Bay Area today, uh, are different as they should be. Um, it was swordsmanship in some place. It was ability to re recite Chinese poetry in another. It was ability to write efficient code in another. Um, so the particular uh, operationalization is different, but at an abstract level, we can all agree with it. And the exciting thing about the the uh, the book, and I'll get to Michael Sandel, my colleague, uh, who was kind enough to write a robust endorsement of our work, even though we sort of disagree with him. Um, <laughs> you got to uh, tell us about yeah. that disagreement as well. Uh, sorry, say again? You should tell us about that disagreement as well. Yes, yes, of course, uh, of course. Uh, but let me tell you about the regularities that we think we see across time and space, because it's exciting that you see it in China, India, the US, Singapore, uh, over a thousand years. Um, what we see is that meritocracy contains the seeds of its own demise. Therefore, it can never be perfected. Uh, it is asymptotically impossible to perfect. Uh, and the simplest way to see this is to um, uh, imagine Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill. Uh, and the further Sisyphus gets the boulder up the hill, the quicker it rolls down and squashes him and he starts anew as he's condemned to do in perpetuity. Um, 
what is the analog to that in meritocracy? Imagine that we all started with a clean slate, tabula rasa, as it were. Um, and we all had a chance to agree on a set of metrics and we competed. And some of us, uh, you got further ahead than did I. And you were rightly by the standards that we had agreed to deem more meritorious and given more goodies by society and so on. And all was well with the world. The problem is that in when your progeny arrive and my progeny arrive, inevitably you will endeavor manfully to stack the deck in the favor of your own progeny um, by fair and foul means. Uh, I'm not accusing you particularly of foul means, but I'm <laughs> saying it's a human tendency. You will do whatever it takes to privilege your progeny, um, uh, as would I. Uh, and that just means that in time t plus one, uh, time t was all fair. Time t plus one is structurally unfair because your progeny will be better placed than I would. And and so what society does, recognizing this again, true in ancient China, true in you know uh, Mughal India, true in British India, true today in the U.S. All societies engage in a process of compensatory discrimination to say we see this problem, so we're going to try to unrig the deck in favor of Uthkarsh's kids uh, so, to, so as to give Tarun's kids a better shot. Uh, and that might take the form of subsidy, affirmative action, Gaokao points, uh, seats reserved, quotas in colleges, quotas in political representation, what have you. And that rankles the Uthkarsh's of the world because they say, my kids don't deserve to be losing out. Um, um, and so society arrives at an, at an uneasy balance. Uh, and the deck is partially re-leveled and the process goes, uh, continues. Now, every so often it runs out of control uh, as it seems to have in, uh, in the US and inequality becomes so rampant that there is no amount of acceptable compensatory discrimination with reasonable tools at society's disposal that can even partially remedy the discrepancy in the playing field. Uh, and then uh, the societal uh, license to coexist breaks down um, and we have a broader reckoning, which may end up with people on the street, anger, this, that, what have you. And we see that uh, on occasion. And then society recalibrates. So this is why we titled the book, The Making Meritocracy, Making of Meritocracy, uh, that it is always in the process of being made. Uh, and the hand-wringing that we are going on through um, in the United States uh, currently uh, is appropriate, uh, but there is no American exceptionalism here. Uh, it is a problem and a phenomenon as old as the hills. Uh, so that's sort of the punchline of the book. Um, now, um, uh, let me tell you about, so there were two very uh, popular uh, books that came out a year or two ago. Um, one by Daniel Markowitz, who is a professor at Yale Law School, um, uh, who said uh, something to I think he came up with the meritocracy trap, right? I referenced him in my paper. <laughs> I'll okay. tell you about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he rightly observed that, look, um, uh, people, um, uh, people who win the meritocracy race, um, uh, you know, it's not like they're winning anything amazing. They, they seem really chronically unhappy, um, uh, both in the process of getting there and once they get there. Uh, and anyway, people who lose it are also unhappy. So what the heck? <laughs> if everybody's unhappy, then why are we doing this? It's a trap, right? Um, that's a very crude summary of what Daniel thinks. Um, and Michael Sandel, my colleague, um, 
uh, amazing philosopher, amazing public intellectual, um, uh, said that this meritocracy doesn't seem to him to be consistent uh, with uh, a quote-unquote good society, uh, that there's really no, we don't seem to have the ability to get it right, and somehow it doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel like a good society. And so um, I'm, I'm doing violence to both these gentlemen's erudition and scholarship, uh, but neither of them was a fan of meritocracy, suffice it to say. And um, uh, so Michael Sonny, my co-editor and I, decided that uh, we couldn't disagree more um, for the very practical reason. Um, and I'm a practical guy. I'm an applied math econ guy doing building ventures. And Michael is your classic academic. He's a historian and uh, intellectual historian. Uh, but both Michael and I agreed on this practicality that all that's great, but everybody has been, the whole thesis of our book is that everybody's been fully aware of this conundrum forever. You know, the Americans and Michael Sandel, Daniel Markovitz might think they're reinventing it or rediscovering it, but this is as old as the hills. And yet, every time we realize that this is as old as the hills, we go back to it and we try to reperfect it and we start anew. And we think that we, Michael, Sonia and I, and our collection of 50 to 70 erudite scholars from around the world, we don't have a better answer uh, as an organizing principle for society. We do think that it is, um, uh, it is morally right, uh, philosophically sound, and economically efficient to continue to aspire to a meritorious society. Um, and those who think otherwise, it's incumbent upon them to suggest at least the contours of an alternative that we can experiment our way towards. And we don't see anybody doing that. So being a glass half full kind of person, uh, I suggest that there are many things that we can do to make the task of Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill uh, less painful. Uh, and we ought to get on with that. Uh, so that's my position. <laughs> no, understood. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that uh, my first paper in Oxford was should parents be, are parents morally okay by sending uh -huh. their kids to private school? Technically, yeah, it was yeah. arguing fairness, like intergenerational yeah. advantage, this and that yeah. from the philosophical lens. And when Absolutely. I read your book, I got some answers because you know, <laughs> okay. college admission is like one really, really important landmark. Yeah. Um, that most parents uh, think about. Navigate, right, yeah. And uh, to me, whether it's China or India or Singapore or the US, it seems like that's where the meritocracy, you know, intergenerational advantage really comes to fore. Some people sure. call them legacy kids, some people call yeah. tiger moms, meritocracy, what have you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you're making two points. One, you can't make meritocracy perfect, but you can make meritocracy slightly better. And mm -hmm. I think that's the most exciting part of the book. Do you mind taking the example of the caste system in India and just sharing your perspective? I'm not expecting you to solve the caste sure. problem in this podcast, no, no. but just explain <laughs> explain that yeah. to us. So for, for your, many of your listeners are probably uh, aware of the caste system in India, but for At those least who Indians know, are, yeah. yeah. For others, you can maybe give a background of caste. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm qualified to, given the number of scholars, but, but basically Indian society forever. Uh, thousands of years has been stratified, right? So there is a, a quote-unquote uh, uh, pecking order of caste that goes from high to low. And generally, if you're a lower caste, you have fewer opportunities in society. And that's been true for a long time, sadly. 
and traditionally caste also had uh, vocational implications. If you were in a certain caste, you did certain things. If another caste, you did certain things. So there are all these theories of where did caste come from, um, and did it have sort of economic roots at some point way back when? Um, but for our purposes, suffice it to say that it is a um, a continuing, particularly in non-urban India, even in urban India, but particularly in non-urban India, uh, continues to be a defining characteristic of Indian society and continues to enable for some, but constrain for the vast majority, the possibilities uh, for uh, a young man or woman to improve his or her station in life. Uh, and so it is rightly the subject of enormous uh, debate, discussion, and so on. And uh, going back to my uh, general characterization of what happens when Sisyphus pushes the boulder up the hill and the boulder starts rolling down. Well, Indian society essentially, you know, the most kind of visible signature of this was the Mandal Commission in the 1980s, um, when uh, legislatively uh, uh, we, we in India embraced uh, a form of affirmative action called reservations, where we began to say that for the disadvantaged castes, uh, and I'm approximating uh, enormously, a certain number of uh, spots in government-funded colleges and public sector corporations are reserved for disadvantaged castes. Um, and as in all forms of compensatory discrimination, the implicit uh, idea there was that uh, there may be, there may be, uh, and there are some papers in our essay on this maybe part also, there may be short-run efficiency costs to doing this. You may not get the most meritorious at a point in time, but that's the price that you pay, a reasonable price to pay for there being a much better, a much more salubrious allocation of talent uh, in the future, uh, because you level the playing field today and made it possible for the best talent to gravitate to the top, um, uh, in theory, independent of various discriminatory um, uh, fault lines like caste or uh, socioeconomic poverty or uh, you know rural versus urban status, uh, many of which are very correlated with each other. Uh, so that's the idea behind the reservations, like any form of compensatory discrimination. Um, uh, you, so your question was, what's my view on this? Um, my question was that uh, the caste system, the negative discrimination, uh, it does make some people quite worked up. And those people usually take makes... the meritocracy yeah. argument that you're basically killing merit today let for me, talent let tomorrow. Me, let me comment on various aspects of this because the the I think this is an issue that the essays do a nice job of. Uh, now the nature of any collect, collection of essays is that they touch on you know a set of important issues but then by no means comprehensive for particularly something as complex as this. But on a number of things they do a nice job. Um, first of all uh, they say that uh, um, some of the essays make a very useful and to me very educational point, which is that when you do the compensatory discrimination, in India's case, reservations, uh, and you reserve some seats for some people, um, whether it's in employment or in education, uh, it's an empirical issue as to how costly that is to society whether it's costly society and how costly is it. And a couple of papers posit that uh, it's not costly society, actually. It, it really, there doesn't seem to be an efficiency loss, uh, uh, partly because uh, even if you reserve it to low, low cost, given India's population, the number of low cost people competing for each spot is any case so high uh, that there's bound to be a lot of meritorious people in there. Um, 
So, you know, this hand-wringing about, oh, we're going to have efficiency losses today um, and we should just, you know, swallow these because it's going to be much more happy tomorrow. Well, maybe, maybe you can have your cake and eat it too. Maybe you can not have the efficiency loss. So that's one nice set of insights mm -hmm. that come out of it. Uh, another nice set of insights come from the applied math people, um, um, particularly this entrepreneur, Varun uh, Agarwal, uh, who, uh, who had built, um, full disclosure, I should say, I was a co-founder of that company, Aspiring Minds. He had built a talent assessment company. And the whole point of that company, which he writes about in the book, um, the whole point of the company was to start with the premise that consistent with the previous study that I just coded, that there is a lot of talent lying around in overlooked pools of human capital, um, to use a little bit of jargon. In other words, we could go to villages, we could go to lower cost settings and run our algorithms to see who is intrinsically uh, capable of doing much better, even if they're not in a fancy school, and find them. And these days with the sweep of you know, uh, our iPhones and Android phones, uh, we don't need much infrastructure to find these people. And once we find them, can we make the market so that we give them the opportunity? Uh, and the proof of the pudding is in the eating because we built a very successful global company, software company 10 years ago, uh, and demonstrated that, uh, that uh, actually we're doing a really bad job by not, we meaning those of us who are more privileged in society, are doing a really bad job um, for ourselves, our kids, and our future progeny and generations by not taking seriously this idea that there are vast pools of talent that are left out. That is an, a relatively easy way to the extent that anything is easy in this difficult uh, terrain. It's a relatively easy way to significantly improve meritocracy uh, in places like India. Uh, and I dare say the same thing is true in China and the United States and so on, that there are pools of people who are just left out. Uh, if we had better informational markers on them, we could do so much better with them. Uh, so that's a simple way of saying that uh, Sisyphus doesn't need to be flattened by the boulder and roll down mm -hmm. the hill quite so fast. Right. So if you look at the uh, the success or lack of success of meritocracy, I think you would admit that meritocracy by and large has yielded fruits. So, But uh, will it continue to bear fruits if there are no changes made in the way it's organized? Or do you think it is well, going to remain the way it is. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, we have to be humble. Um, so if we've been going through this uh, song and dance of Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill and getting rolled down over and again for thousands of years in <laughs> different places, and if I were a betting man, which I'm not, I would bet that it would continue, um, mm. that we will keep doing this as human beings, because you and I will keep rigging the deck in favor of our progeny, Anybody else who had a chance would do exactly the same thing. Uh, there would be a sense of unfairness by those left behind. They would agitate. Politicians and regulators would kick in to compensate. Uh, your kids and my kids would be upset about the compensation. And this would go on and on. So I think absent somebody coming up with a, uh, with a version of utopia uh, that is uh, concrete and actionable uh, and not just tilting at windmills, um, we will continue this process. Uh, but I do think, so that's the uh, cynical view. The positive view, which is more in line with my own half glass half full personality is, there's a lot of stuff we can do to make this a lot more smooth and efficient and less angst ridden. And so let's get on with it and do it. Um, 
talking about the strongest critics uh, who like a disgruntled parent or some privilege or somebody else who's disagreed with you or your colleagues and what part of the argument do you struggle to come up with a reasonable answer to um so the, the i i'm not aware of um, anybody who has uh, seen any presentation or read the overall uh, read a smattering of the essays or our introductory chapter no, no uh, i don't mean in terms of the book i meant more general in meritocracy uh, the idea i think one of the areas one of the areas where um there was a lot of um but two, two things i would point to uh, i would somewhat discount uh, the uh, espoused alienation of the privileged right um because it's it's true that there's some unfairness to it to uh, it appears that if you're asian american it's harder to get into the ivy league in the us for instance um i remember my kids mentioning this to me several years ago before they went to college and i said uh, probably yes <laughs> that's the case <laughs> on the other hand you know, you had a lot of privileges so just get on with it um and do your best and don't don't worry too much about it um so i would tend to discount relatively speaking the alienation of people like myself um who 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 might be upset at affirmative action which by the way i'm not i'm not upset but if people like myself who might be i would discount that uh, i think the ones that are much more serious and justified are people who really genuinely are left out um and you know i'm living in a very affluent uh, corner in newton an affluent community in in the united states but you know i'm looking at my home office window and 2 miles in that direction is a very poor part of boston um i'm sure there's tons of talent there that is worthy of harvard college if somebody had the wherewithal to find them and then the wherewithal to handhold them the way my parents educated me and held my hand uh, through the process or your parents did or so on um so they are rightly upset and i think that blame is on me which is if i'm in a position um to do something about it then morally i have to um so that's what i'm trying with my charity aspirants shoot now at a global scale but that's a separate type of conversation i think that's the group i would uh, pay attention to there's another uh, very um um trenchant crit uh, critic of the way meritocracy plays out who has a chapter in our book my colleague the anthropologist uh, ajanta subramaniam um and she says that uh and michael sandel makes this point also in his book she says that uh, we are uh, those of us who are privileged are confusing why we are privileged uh, we think we're privileged or we like to tell ourselves a story that we're privileged because we work really hard uh, we deserve it really we are mostly mostly privileged because our parents were privileged uh so stop you know patting yourself on the back and uh, um expressing outrage at uh, affirmative action for others and so on because mostly it's the community that did it not you um and i think that's a reasonable reasonable uh, reasonable position for both michael and jatha to to espouse and i'm glad it's in the book uh, centrally and we engage with it um um my response to both of them is i agree b what are you doing about it um give me an alternative and i'm going to do something about it because that's my orientation um 
I mean, they are they are doing something about it. They're writing about it and bringing our attention to it as scholars. That's their primary um, uh, avocation. So it's great. Um, Aspire is a word close to you, right? Aspire Academy, Aspire Institute, Aspiring Minds. <laughs> yeah, I think that sort of sums up your... Um, well, there's a funny stuff. story. There's a funny story. Uh, when we built this opera company starting in like... I think we started in 2008 or nine, right after the financial meltdown. And so it was nightmare for two years. Um, uh, we call, I think we originally it was Ignited, uh, Ignited Minds. And then we got a note from uh, one of my favorite people, uh, President Abdul Kalam, uh, saying, hey, I already wrote a book called Ignited Minds. <laughs> <laughs> he was not complaining. I don't know, somebody's office, I assume, or he, he visited, uh, I invited him to Harvard, so I had a chance to spend some time with him. He was not complaining. He was just pointing out. Uh, and uh, I think somebody, maybe our lawyer, said we should change the name to Aspiring Minds. But now we have Aspire Institute, which is, um, um, if I if I could say a word about it, because I'm really excited about it, and it relates to this issue of meritocracy. Please do. We we partner on that, and it's always like yeah, amazing to see the kind of talent we we get from them. Yes, no, it's 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 amazing. So, uh, Aspire Institute basically is targeting 18 to 26 years old, um, anywhere in the world, who who are first generation learners in colleges. Typically they're in unknown colleges. Uh, they don't have to be, but they're mostly in unknown colleges. And they typically have no uh, or very limited societal means to progress with their degrees and their degrees tend not to be that recognized and famous and so on. And so, you know, my experience with them is that they are remarkably talented, remarkably talented. If I had to plot for you, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a distribution curve on talent for uh, the Ivy League, it would be like this. And for, uh, for you know, college number 300, it would be a right shift to distribution or a left shift to distribution, depending on how you're looking at it. But the distributions would overlap dramatically. So in other words, the vast majority of talent is indistinguishable in my view. It just needs a different a packaging and a different presentation. And so we decided, uh, my co-founder, Karim Lakhani, who's an um, uh, engineering management scholar, also a professor at HBS, um, in a curious twist, he's of Pakistani origin, I'm of Indian origin, so it's particularly fun to get Pakistani and Indian kids together and realize that they have so much in common. Um, maybe that's our tiny contribution to world peace in, uh, in the And the partition project, I don't know if he was a collaborated there or not. He was a collaborator in that, that as well, yes. But Kareem and I started this about um, five years ago as a skunk works within Harvard, um, where we basically used the original software company's algorithms to find uh, talent in different countries, um, got them access to free online courses, and the initial model brought them to a physical location, brought a small percentage of them to a physical location where we showed them amazing things. So you had people from the jungles in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, to people from the Chittagong Hills in Bangladesh, Rohingya refugees, to someone from Jharkhand in India, uh, coming together, leaving their you know tough environments for the first time and showing up in Dubai and looking at the skyscrapers and saying, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and just learning to aspire, hence the name, Aspire Institute. Because I think that's the key thing. If you think you can do it, that's a huge barrier crossed. Right? 
way more important than access to um, uh, access to you know A, B, or C. That if you begin to brainwash yourself into thinking you can do it, you're halfway there. Um, so this grew very rapidly. So we're now in 130 countries. We had 17,000 kids go through it last year. Our target for this year is 50,000. And our um, target for 27 is a million kids per year, is to go through and get access to assessments, get access to free courses uh, for which they can get paid certificates, get access to world-class faculty from everywhere, uh, LSC, Sciences Po, Hitotsubashi, National University of Singapore, Princeton, Harvard, whatever, doesn't matter, uh, and create a platform where, uh, and everybody's doing it gratis. Right. So no charge to the kids, everything is gratis. It's funded by basically three or four of us who decided that we would fund the core infrastructure. So the core infrastructure as it stands now is a team of six or seven full-time people in Cambridge, Mass. And then a hub in Sao Paulo, a hub in Lahore, and a hub in Bangalore. Um, each of which is a full-time person plus some two or three other part-timers, and then hubs emerging in maybe half a dozen other cities where people can physically agglomerate once in a while. So that's the structure. But, you know, it's great to see these networks forming. Uh, and it's very aligned with your own effort at Network Capital yeah. right, to create networks and communities. So we I look so forward to hiring some of these work. alums from aspiring. Yeah. So, yeah, that'll be that'll be the ultimate, you know, coming together of yes, uh, yeah. everything. No, so this year, we, this year we hired a person who is 100% uh, focused on alumni engagement hmm. um, and we've uh, out of the this number is a bit made up but of the 40 50,000 people who've been through the program the last few years you know we put out the word and a thousand of them showed up and said we would love to be ambassadors and you know put our shoulders to the wheel and uh, begin to work on it uh, so even if you know two three hundred of those work on it in their own countries that that feet on the street is what makes us successful Hundred percent. You know, what a fantastic so note, uh, yeah. you know, to to begin to conclude this podcast. I just want to ask one last question because meritocracy is uh, such a central question for you know students and young professionals, which is mostly what network capital is tailored mm -hmm. on. Plus, now there are some politicians and policymakers who also you know participate yes, in many of our discussions. What would be your recommendation to them? How should they process meritocracy? How should they think about privilege and perhaps affirmative action? So I think regardless of whether you are, um, uh, so I'll address myself to those people in society who have privilege currently, because I think it's incumbent upon them and us to do something. And I would say, regardless of whether you are um, an, um, an entrepreneur or a manager, you know, working, um, uh, either for yourself or for a paycheck, or you're a politician setting policy or a regulator, I would say that the biggest bang for the buck is to look in your own vicinity, and you can define vicinity as your city, state, province, country, you know, industry, whatever, and look for places where there are very large pools of talent who are completely ignored. Um, so the acid test for me is to go to a company and say, where do you hire from? Mm. And typically they list, you know, 10 places. And, you know, a couple of them will be the elite, elite of the elite. And then the others will be local, 
local institutions and so on. Um, that's pretty small bore, small potatoes, as it were, right? You, with technology these days, you could do so much better and you would give opportunity to others. Um, heck, if you want to hire people, you know, uh, call me up. I have alums in 130 <laughs> countries. <laughs> we actually had somebody do that. I spoke about this at the Harvard alumni event and we had uh, an amazing clean energy entrepreneur who had worked in Washington, D.C. all her life and then went to West Africa to build a renewable energy company. And she said, hey, I need 10 people in West Africa. Uh, give me some names. And so we gave her names. Um, but that's what I would direct people to, that you know, if you get a chance, um, you know, skim the book, get it on Kindle or wherever you are, and um, making meritocracy. But at a practical level, and more important, uh, there are things that you can do. Um, how about if I distill it down to one thing? Uh, improve the information set about those who are left out of your formal processes. Right? Cultivate more information about uh, people that don't enter your penumbra. It is not hard to do. 